We are in a series in the book of Ezra called The Hope and Promise of Revival. And I think that sometimes when we hear the word revival, some odd things creep into our heads. One of the odd things that creeps into my head is a uh, red-veined preacher yelling at me. That's not revival. No. Uh, another thing that can creep into our heads as we think about revival is the idea of kind of manipulation, of emotion, trying to draw people in. I remember when I was in high school, we had a high school group of, I don't know, somewhere between 25 and 40 kids that were at this event where this revival preacher was preaching. And, you know, we had the event that I think it probably started at 6.37 in the evening. And this guy was determined that every teenager was going to be at the altar. So he preached. And then he would give an invitation. And there was a few kids that came forward. And then he says, uh, you know, well, that's not enough. So we got to keep talking and manipulating and giving emotional appeal and it went on and on. And I think there were some people that came to the altar just because they wanted the meeting to be over. You know? And then he started getting into more and more sins and all of this. And until there were just two people sitting in their pews, me and one other girl. <clears throat> and I was determined that I was not going to be manipulated by emotion. And he was determined that he would manipulate me by emotion. The meeting went until 2 o'clock in the morning. I did not go forward. I had been taught too well in the Scriptures. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8 this morning. We're going to find out some principles of revival today that aren't about red-veined preachers, or emotional appeals, or altar calls. It is about good people, prayer and fasting, and ethical practices that create the ground of revival. Good people, prayer and fasting, and ethical practices that prepare the ground for revival. Uh, Ezra chapter 8 is where we are today. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Now, I will read verse 1, and then I'll skip down to verse 15. And the reason is because there are even more unpronounceable names in verses 2 through 14 than we had last week. Um, and what they are is a list of people and their genealogies of people who went with Ezra from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Uh, you will remember that chapters 1 through 6 are about the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel and that now about 60 to 80 years have passed when we get to chapters 7 through 10. And in chapter 7, Ezra had committed himself to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach its laws and statutes in Israel. And today we're going to look at the 
ground on which revival takes place, about 60 to 80 years after the temple is rebuilt, Ezra is coming from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So verses 2 to 14 are going to have a listing of people that uh, we're just going to skip that list and get to the meat of the, of, the, uh, of the action in the chapter. Verse 1, these are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king. Verse 15, I gathered them, that's the people listed there in the previous verses, to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Kasaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah, the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants who David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them, and I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand, 650 talents of silver and the silver vessels worth 200 talents, and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 darics, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, son of Phinehas, 
and with them were the Levites, Jazabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from the captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Please have a seat. Now, we're going to break this down so you understand what's going on here, because in the midst of the names, it's easy to lose sight, isn't it, of just what's happening here. So, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the people who lived revived lives, their practice of prayer and fasting and seeking of the Lord, and then the ethical practices that accompanied their actions so that the revival did not have any cold water poured on it, okay? So let's look first at the people who live revived lives. Verses 1 to 14 give a list of the men who returned with their genealogies. We talked a little bit last week about genealogies and why they are important. It demonstrates first these people's importance and secondly their qualifications, their bona fides. They're describing that these are people who are worthy of the tasks that were presented before them given the way it worked in Israel was it had to be someone who was from the priestly family. Now, this also shows the value of each individual, doesn't it? Because they're listed by name, while at the same time emphasizing the community. Isn't that an interesting thing? The individual is emphasized, but as a part of the community. This actually speaks to the importance of church membership. Church membership is a gift of God's grace that his new community of the church is not based on genealogy. You don't have to give anybody your genealogy when you come to our Discovering Membership class. It's not a qualification. It's not a qualification to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Rather, it's based on joining like-minded believers in a community of faith so that we have people from all over the world welcome in the local fellowship. Uh, Yes, the individual is important. God's grace is exhibited in the unique blessing of every individual. And yes, uniting with other believers is important. God's grace is exhibited in both His love for the individual and his blessing on his covenant community, the church. Now, back in Ezra's day, it was all about genealogies, wasn't it? And the family names there can all be found in the list in chapter 2, except for one in verse 9, which means 
You remember, chapter 2 happens 60 to 80 years earlier than chapter 8. What that means is the first group that came back in chapter 2 had some family members that had stayed behind in Babylonia, and now some of those people are joining that first group of returnees. Okay. So there were apparently several groups that returned at different times. We see that, by the way, in verse 13. <coughs> the sons of Adonikam, those who came later. You see, so there's several phases of returning. Now, if you compare the numbers of people in, Exodus, in Ezra 2 with the numbers that are given of David's census, you would see that the numbers that return are really small. In David's census, there were probably a little over a million people altogether that belonged to Israel. In Ezra chapter 2, the number of people that return is at its max, 50,000. Okay? So, a very small number, a remnant that returns. And here in chapter 8, if you take all these people and add all their families and even give pretty high birth rates to their children... At the most, you're talking in chapter 8 about 5,000 people. So, Israel is a nation under King David, over a million people. The returnees in Ezra 2, 50,000. The returnees here in chapter 8, at the most, 5,000. It's small potatoes. But here's my question for you as it relates to revival. Do we focus on numbers or do we focus on revival? You see, there's a lot of people today that want to think that as long as you have something big going on where there's lots of people, that that's an evidence of God's presence. May I submit to you that that's not necessarily true that the seeking after God on the part of a small number of people is more powerful than millions of people who have a shallow relationship with the living God. Now in verses 15 through 20, we have this pause in travel for three days. Um, at the river, it says, that runs to Ahava. At this point, you were expecting me to show you a map, right? To show you where Ahava is. And in a little later, there's a leading man at the place that's called Kasaphia, and you would want me to show you a map of that. And I would, but we don't know where those places are, except that they're in Babylonia somewhere, okay? So I don't have a map for you. There's a pause at this river that runs to Ahava, and Ezra realizes there's no sons of Levi in the group. And so in verses 16 and 17, he delegates to people whom he called men of insight to go to a guy named Ido, who is called a leading man at Kasaphia. And Ezra tells these men of insight what to say to a, this leading man and his brothers and the temple servants. Verse 17 tells the message. The message is, 
send us ministers for the house of our God. We don't have any of the sons of Levi. We want some of them to come with us as we're making our way back to Jerusalem. And so he has sent these men of insight to speak to this leading man to send more people who were of the sons of Levi to join the returnees. Now, these men came, verses 18 to 20. They came. Sherebiah comes, two other men with their sons and relatives, and then 220 others come. These 220 were dating back to the time that King David assigned these families to serve the Levites at the temple. And so this man that comes is called in verse 18, a man of discretion. You see, we've got men of insight, a leading man, and a man of discretion. Keep those phrases in mind while I say one more thing. You'll notice the good hand of our God was on us. We sang that today, didn't we? He leadeth me. By his own hand, he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Back in chapter 7, last week we saw this, this hand of the Lord. Look at chapter 7, verse 6 briefly, the end of the verse. The king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Chapter 7, verse 9, he went up from Babylonia, for the good hand of his God was on on him, chapter 7, verse 28, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And now here in chapter 8, verse 18, the good hand of our God on us. Quite remarkable, isn't it, to think about how desperate Ezra and his people were for the hand of the Lord to be on them. Now, let's back to these, this, this way in which these people were described in this section here. Uh, think for a moment about men of insight, leading man, man of discretion. Revival needs the people of revival, people who are consecrated, and prepared and ready. Insight, men of insight. That means they have insight into the times in which they live and they have insight into the scriptures from which God speaks. And men of insight, people of insight, are people who have an understanding of the times and an understanding of the scriptures and they bring the two together. Then there are people who know how to lead. This Ido is referred to as a leading man. Doesn't mean he got the first role in the, in the theatrical production. It means that he was a leader. And I look at the world in which we live and I look at the Christian landscape and I see all too much of people that are called Christian leaders today Really, they're just building their own kingdoms of wood, hay, and stubble. That's all they're about. 
even in my own lifetime, I think about the integrity of someone like Billy Graham, who could be such a spokesman for God in, in purity of life and sincerity of heart that all the world would go, come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Oh, are there things to criticize about him as every human being? Of course there are. But this is the kind of people that we're missing in the world in this hour. We need men of insight, people of insight. When I say men, I'm using it generically. People of insight, people who know how to lead. And then notice in verse 18, this, this guy Sherebiah is called a man of discretion. Discretion means being able to know right from wrong in uncertain, never-before-seen situations. Returning from exile is a never-before-seen situation. And here was a guy who knew what to do. He could figure out from biblical principles right from wrong. We live in a day of Isaiah 5.20 where evil is called good and good is called evil. And we need people of discretion who can encounter never-before-seen situations. And we see that in the moral landscape of our own culture. Never-before-seen situations. We need people who can speak from the Word of God what is right and what is wrong. A person of discretion knows people and how they really are. That when there is someone who is faking or being a phony, they can tease it out. They can sense where it's wrong. These are the kind of people we need in this hour. People of insight. People who know how to lead. People of discretion. Now when we come to verses uh, 21 to 23 here, we're going to discover something that's preparing to serve the Lord is just as important as serving the Lord. Now in chapter 7, we saw Ezra's service. He studied the word to do it and to teach it in Israel. But did you know that Preparation to serve the Lord is just as important to serve the Lord. I'll quote that famous uh, basketball coach, Bobby Knight, here. Now, he is no person of virtue. But he was asked one time whether he believed Vince Lombardi's thing, win winning's not the uh, most important thing, it's the only thing. He, he said, no, no, no. He says what he believed is the will to prepare to win is the only thing. And I think he's on to something. That preparation to serve the Lord is just as important as serving the Lord. Ezra, in verse 21, proclaims a fast. Notice the reason for the fast. That we might humble ourselves before our God, first purpose. Secondly, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So instead of just heading right out there on this trip from Babylonia to Jerusalem, that would be serving the Lord. He says, no, we got to prepare. 
And the way we prepare is we fast. And we fast for two reasons. That we would first humble ourselves before our God, and secondly, that we would seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, for our children, and for all these temple vessels that we're bringing back with us. Illness on this 900-mile journey was almost a certainty. They were out of their depth in their ability to get clean water. They were out of their depth in terms of their ability to get untainted food. They needed God or they would die. In the 900 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem, there were all kinds of places where criminals loved to hang out. By the way, do you know where Hezbollah is in Syria? Okay. That's the territory that Ezra's walking through. People haven't changed from that time to now. They got different weapons, but the same kinds of things are going on. So Ezra's like, whew, we got this long journey and we got we to gotta fast. There's a desperation on Ezra's part. By the way, that's good evidence that the followers of the true God can pray for safe journeys. Sometimes we do that, don't we? It's not a bad thing to do. Why does Ezra not do the practical thing here. Because Ezra had a relationship with Artaxerxes, the king. You know, he could have gone to Artaxerxes and said, oh yeah, uh, Artaxerxes, you have said that we should go and we should reestablish the worship of Israel at the temple there, and you have given us all the vessels that the Babylonians stole, and you've told us that we should take them back to Jerusalem, and you said that anything we lack could come out of the government's treasury. We're thankful, but we're scared about the journey. Could you supply some soldiers to protect us on our way? That would have been the practical thing. Ezra doesn't do that. And you know why he doesn't? Because he had been witnessing to Artaxerxes. He had been sharing his faith with Artaxerxes. Look at verse 22. I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way because we had told the king they were testifying about God. Notice the hand of our God, there's that hand of God again, is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. The testimony that they had given to Artaxerxes was about the attributes of God. God is good and he has powerful wrath. And notice the phrase all there. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. You know what's in there? That's an invitation from Ezra Artaxerxes. You know, you can seek him too. The hand of God is on all who seek him. He's, he's witnessing to Artaxerxes. And he's also giving him a warning. The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. It's all about a testimony for the Lord. They'd already testified to the goodness of God, the wrath of God. It was a gospel message to the king that Ezra did not want to diminish in any way. And so he says, I'm not, not going to ask for a guard. 
I've already said God would watch over us. So he doesn't do the practical thing. Now, it's not wrong to have guards. If you work at a bank, it's okay to have guards. Nehemiah had guards on his journey in Nehemiah chapter 2. But Ezra had determined by prayer and fasting God's will on the matter, just as we will need to do at various decision points in our lives. There will be times where there isn't a clear-cut answer, and we need to know the guidance of God. That's why prayer and fasting are so important. Look at verse 23. So, we fasted and implored our God for this, and He listened to our entreaty. They fasted in order to, show, to, to be serious. They're serious about this. They implored God. This is the same word, this word implore, is the same Hebrew word that's found in verse 22 in Ezra's testimony. The hand of our God is good for all who seek Him. Seeking and imploring. Same word. By the way, that implies that there is a hiddenness to God. There is. Did you know that God hides Himself so that people will seek Him? If you think, well, why doesn't God just show up and show me what's going on? How dare you think that you could call on the God of universe to do your bidding? No, he, He's bigger than you. And He hides Himself in order that people would seek Him. But in that hiddenness of God, that also suggests hope, doesn't it? That in the seeking, in the imploring, God will show up and He will answer. And you know what? He does. Such is His goodness. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy that was made nearly 1,500 years before in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Hear these words from Deuteronomy 4, beginning at verse 27. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. It's a prediction. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. They're, that's a prediction. They're going to Babylon and they're going to be few in number. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek, there's that word again, seek the Lord, your God, and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You see the hope there? Ezra had to be, as remember, he studied the law. As he read Deuteronomy chapter 4 in his prayer and fasting, he had to be thinking, I am living this moment. <laughs> this is it. It's the fulfillment of God's work. And by the way, when it says seeking with all your heart and with all your soul, 
That suggests that seeking the Lord is an exercise of love, doesn't it? I believe that Ezra was a man who loved God with all his heart. Now, Pastor Jeff has mentioned this several times in our Wednesday night prayer meetings on revival, this idea that's phrased praying through. Have you ever heard that phrase before, praying through something? Um, I believe that that's what Ezra is doing right here. He's praying through this very difficult moment as they are preparing to leave Babylonia for Jerusalem, and he's praying through. The first president of Moody Bible Institute after D.L. Moody was a man named R.A. Torrey, and here's what he said on this subject. O men and women, pray through, pray through, pray through. Do not just begin to pray and praise a little while and throw up your hands and quit, but pray and pray and pray until God bends the heavens and comes down. Did you know that Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 18? He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. This principle of praying through. Jesus asks a question as he concludes his teaching on this matter. Nevertheless, in spite of the truthfulness of this idea of continuing in prayer, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Verse 23 tells us that when Ezra fasted and implored God for this, notice, he listened to the entreaty. Listen to the words that here are here in verses 21 to 23. The words are fasting, humbling ourselves before God, seek from Him, implored, entreated. <laughs> and what happens? The hand of God. We saw it in 7, 6, 7, 9, 7, 28. We see it in 8, 18. And notice now we see it in 8, 22. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him. And we see it in verse 31, a little bit later. They up departed from the river of Hava to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. How do we get the hand of our God on us? Preparing to serve the Lord is just as important as serving the Lord. Preparing to serve, what is that? Well, let's use the words from Ezra. Fasting, humbling, seeking, imploring, entreating 
I find there too little of that in our Christian experience and a whole lot of quote-unquote practical stuff like going to the king and asking for soldiers. There's a lot more of that than there is seeking and imploring and fasting and entreating. Let's look lastly at the importance of integrity to revival. In verses 24 to 27, they divide up the gold and the silver for the temple to these priests. And uh, in verses 28 to 30, the directions are given to them. You are holy. These objects are holy. The word holy means separated for the Lord's service, for the Lord's purpose. There's these free will offerings to the Lord, the God of your fathers. And now verse 29, here's the job description. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and Levites, the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So they're leaving Babylon. He's apportioned this gold and silver and these vessels to various of the priests that are going to travel in various groups on this 900-mile journey to Jerusalem. And he says, guard and keep it until we get to Jerusalem when we will weigh them out and hand them over to the people in charge there at the house of God at the rebuilt temple. That's the job. So the priests did this. Verse 30, the priests and Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Notice the arrival and the accounting. They departed from the river on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. And notice, He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. That was something that they were very worried over. We came to Jerusalem. There we remained three days. My suggestion is that they're there for three days because they're traveling in various groups and it takes a while for the whole group to all get there, right? And when they arrive on the fourth day within the house of our God, the silver, the gold, the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest. With him was Eleazar. With them were the Levites. The whole was counted and weighed. The weight of everything was recorded. In other words, you've got a plurality of people receiving these gold and silver that were coming from various groups of caravans that have made their way this 900-mile journey. Now, I want to ask you a question what would have happened to the revival in Israel and the restored temple at Jerusalem if somebody said, oh yeah, uh, we lost a plate. Uh, some gold and silver vessels got stolen from us. We got ambushed and they stole some vessels from us. Now, that happens. People in the work of God, sadly, will sin and do stuff like that. But when it happens, it pours cold water on revival. Integrity is essential to revival. Now, I know what happens in evangelicalism. People sin greatly, and then what they do, because they don't want revival or some exciting thing that's going on to be, uh, have cold water thrown on it, so what they'll do is they'll cover it up and hide it. 
which only makes things worse. You see, what needs to happen for there to be integrity is there needs to be awareness that sinfulness of sin exists. And where sin is found, it needs to be exposed. But every time, whether it's hidden or it's exposed, cold water is thrown on revival. This is why the integrity of every Christian matters. That any Christian who is walking in hypocrisy causes the effect of revival to be diminished and the greater a person's responsibilities and roles of service, the worse it is. That's why the Bible says, let not many of you become teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment. Integrity is absolutely crucial. It's essential to revival, and any lack of integrity throws water on revival. Look, there's all these names of these people that we just skipped over, right? I mean, we just read them and we're like, yeah, who names their kids after these people? They're, <laughs> they're nothing, right? They're nothing to us, except they were absolutely critical in their integrity in taking these vessels from Babylonia to Jerusalem, and that if they hadn't done it right, it would have been the ruination of what God was doing in resurrecting the worship of His holy name at the temple in Jerusalem. This morning, we see the ethics of true revival. Good people. People of integrity, of leadership, and discretion. We see the value of a desperate prayer and fasting and seeking after the Lord rather than doing the quote-unquote practical thing, that preparing to serve is just as important as serving. And we see these ethical practices of a proper financial accounting as absolutely critical to the integrity of revival. This morning, I'm going to ask us to pray about these things. Will you pray with me right now, and then we will pray in groups. Pray with me. Lord, we ask you to do that work in us that would prepare the soil for revival in ourselves and in our church and in our community. In a room this size, there are people who do not know Jesus as their Savior. Help them to see that we are helpless and hopeless without Him. Lord, reveal to each one their lost or saved condition. By Your Holy Spirit, we ask You to impart this truth that the Bible is the Word of God. We pray for that witness of the Holy Spirit to each person's heart here in this room. And then we pray that you would be pleased to save. That people would say, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I believe you died to pay the penalty for my sin. I trust you now to forgive me. 
I believe you rose from the dead, and so I believe that you will prepare a place for me to be with you where you are. And Lord, for those of us who know you, please help us with our being people of integrity and discretion and leadership. Help us to think of preparing to serve as just as important as serving. And Lord, may we be people who give a proper accounting of our lives to you. That none of us would be throwing the cold water on the fire of revival. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.